We started Lent on Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service. Uh, if you chose to do Valentine's Day instead of Ash Wednesday, that's okay, that's all right, but you missed a pretty great service. We are in Lent for 40 days and will culminate on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, a few weeks uh, from now. We take Lent, the church has taken the, the tradition of Lent, um, patterned off of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness right after he was baptized, and also patterned off of the Israelites' 40 years in the wilderness. It ends up that wilderness is a pretty big theme in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. Wilderness is that in-between space, that on-my-way-somewhere-else space, that I'd rather be anywhere else than here space. That's the wilderness. And it ends up there's a lot of wilderness in the Bible. One of the ways the Scripture uh, talks about wilderness, one of the ways that uh, the, the Old Testament and New Testament interact with the theme of wilderness is through the theme of exile. Say exile. You're going to hear me say that word a lot. Exile is also a huge theme in, uh, in the Scriptures. It's a huge theme for the Jewish people. Uh, They are on their way to the land through the wilderness, then they're in the promised land for a while, and then they lose the land. And first it's Assyria, then it's Babylon, then it's Persia, then it's Greece, and then when we get to Jesus, it's Rome who's occupied them. And so so there's this common experience of being uh, sent away from or kept from one's homeland. That'll be kind of our definition. I think we might have a slide for that. Our definition for for exile is being sent away from or or being kept from your home country. That's the experience of exile. And you just can't read the Bible without reckoning with exile because it's so often the experience of the Israelites. They've been sent away or they've been kept from their home country. They are exiles. It's a theme that continues into the New Testament, but we've got to look a little harder to see it. There's persecution that happens. The church is is scattered away from Jerusalem, as we'll see in just a minute. And for the first 300 years of Christian history, uh, the theme of exile is one that would resonate with most of the church because the Roman Empire uh, goes through these waves of persecuting the Christians. And so, so the experience of being a Christian for those first few hundred years was one of being in exile, of being on the run, of being pushed away. That changes, though, when the Emperor Constantine becomes emperor, and he makes Christianity not just legal, but the official religion of the Roman Empire. You can imagine that that changed things a little bit, right? One minute, you are a persecuted person. The next minute, your religion is literally the official state-sponsored religion of the entire Roman Empire. And so Christian people went from experiencing their faith as something that would place them in exile experiencing persecution to something that was uh, uh, central to the empire itself, the very empire that had been persecuting him, uh, persecuting them. And so for some of us, the idea of being a Christian and experiencing exile is a bit of a stretch because we've associated Christianity with a sense of comfort or stability or safety. Are, are you with me? Are you with me? Right? We, we haven't necessarily associated Christianity with exile. But that would have been sort of the common experience for the people of God through most of the scriptures and for the first few hundred years of Christian history. And as we'll see a little bit later for many of us even today. So during this Lent, I want us to think a lot about exile. And I want us to come to see what it looks like to thrive in exile. 
to not just get by in exile, to not just make it through, to not just survive exile, but to thrive in exile. And so what we're going to do today is is, uh, look at a brief introduction to exile and to what it looks like to thrive in exile, why it is that we can thrive in exile, and then we're going to look at the role of faith and doubt in situations of exile. And then every, every week for the rest of Lent, we'll look at a different aspect of the experience of exile. Today it'll be faith and doubt, and then we'll look at other aspects of the experience of exile in coming weeks. So far so good? Yeah? All right, good. Thank you, Brent, for the thumbs up in the back. So we've talked a little bit so far about what exile is, why we need to take exile seriously, because that is sort of the heritage that we come from as Christian people, uh, coming from uh, the Jewish faith. I want to kind of break down real quickly three more specific ways and reasons that different ones of us in this room will experience situations of exile. And the first is very simply for confessing and following Jesus. The, the, the number one kind of baseline reason that you and I might experience situations of exile, that feeling of being kind of kept or sent away from our home country, is simply because we confess and follow Jesus. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He prepares them for this in John chapter 15. He says, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You do not belong to the world, Jesus says. That's that's 101 for us. That's foundational for us, that when we say yes to Jesus, we no longer belong to the world. We belong to Jesus. And by the way, Jesus' life did not end well. Would you agree? Like, it ended poorly from almost every vantage point except for one very specific vantage point. That is now our association. We belong to the one who was maligned, who was slandered, who suffered, who, who, who was crucified. That's now our identity. So on a baseline level, our experience of exile begins with our identification with Jesus. Amen? Number two, another reason some of us in this room will experience exile is because we belong to a culturally marginalized group of people. We actually see this in in, uh, early chapters of the book of Acts, when in the church there's a group of uh, uh, Hellenistic Jewish widows and Hebraic Jewish widows who have both uh, confessed Jesus as their Lord. The Hellenistic widows, they they have a higher status They are savvy in the ways of the Roman Empire, including the language and the customs. The Hebraic widows, the the, the, uh, more Hebrew Jewish widows who confess Jesus, they've been kind of kept from some of the Roman Empire. Their accent is different. Their language is different. And they occupy a lower status. And so they were actually um, being taken care of poorly in comparison to the the Hellenistic widows. There are uh, different ones of us who bring with us to our faith the experience of cultural marginalization. Are you with me? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And that, it becomes an intersection for our experience of exile as Christian people. Something I just want us to kind of keep in mind this morning. And by the way, those of you who, like me, uh, kind of have access to power and privilege from the very same culture that can marginalize and oppress our other family members in the body of Christ, we need to be deeply aware of our own blindness when it comes to this conversation about exile because we've been deeply formed by the empire. Anybody with me? Anybody with me? Okay, here's number three. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) Another way that we can experience exile is simply by kind of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is what happened to some of the early church in Acts chapter 8. 
verse 1. Stephen, uh, one of the early deacons, had just been publicly stoned. And in in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. A persecution happens. If you happen to be a a Christian in that spot, you were going to experience that persecution. You were going to be driven out of Jerusalem and kept away from Jerusalem simply because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I I would suggest to you that many of our immigrant sisters and brothers right now are finding that to be their experience in this country, that they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in our nation's history. And they are experiencing a kind of a marginalization and, and exile or, uh, or even being kept away in the first place. We have only admitted 7,000 refugees to our country over the past six months out of a, a total possible of like 45,000, which that number is the lowest in a long, long time, that possible number. Only 7,000 have been admitted into our country over the past six months. These are people desperately in need of a homeland, desperately in need of peace, of security, of stability, of healing, oftentimes because they're fleeing from some kind of instability or war that we ourselves as a nation have our fingerprints on. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. So, so, so sometimes our experience of exile, depending on who we are and where we come from, can intersect with simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Obviously, these three all get blended together. They're not kind of evenly broken out like one category all the time. But I want, I want you to begin to see how different ones of us can experience this long, long history of being exiles. Being an exile, the experience of exile, is a normal part of the Christian life. And this is what I need us to kind of get our heads around today. The experience of exile is a normal part of the Christian life, whether that is because we follow the the rejected and the crucified Jesus, whether that's because of our identification with culturally marginalized and oppressed peoples, or whether that's simply because we are remaining present and vulnerable to this troubled world, exile is a normal Christian experience. And we will better understand our call to love this world when we come to understand ourselves as being exiles in this world. Can I say that again? We will better understand our call to love this world when we more clearly understand our role as exiles in this world. Yeah? Okay. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, look, again, this world is not your home. We await our citizenship in God's coming kingdom when it will be established in finality at Jesus Christ's return. Our exile will end. That's the good news. We will come to our eternal home as the kingdom of God is made manifest on earth as it is even now in heaven. And until then, our wandering homes will find, our wandering hearts will find their homes in Jesus. That's our hope. That's our expectation. God's people over the centuries have wrestled, though, with this exilic experience. Nobody wants the experience, the feeling of being sent away or kept from their home. But in their wrestling, the Bible records a life-giving wisdom for thriving in exile. And so briefly, here are three truths that I think we should hold on to over the next few weeks as we think more deeply about thriving in exile. Here's the first truth about living and thriving in exile. God is still in control in exile. Amen? 
God is still in control in exile. The cry of our hearts when we find ourselves in exile, when we, when we come to grips with the fact that this, 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 this country or this place is not our home, that, that something about following Jesus always kind of pushes us just a little bit out of the experience of being able to fully claim a place. The cry of exile is, bring me home. Or put it differently, get me out of here to somewhere else, to anywhere else. It's indicative of the human belief that I will be okay when I get home. It's a deeply good uh, human instinct. I'll be okay if I can just get home. God's answer to that instinct, though, is not always what we would want it to be. Because rather than promise a return to home on our timeline, Instead, time and time again, God reminds us that he is in control even in exile. So the prophet Ezekiel is talking to a people who are in exile, and and he has some hard words for them. He says, this exile for you is going to be like like a sword, like a sharp sword that slices right through you. It's a hard word. It's a painful word. And, And then Ezekiel says, but the hand on the hilt of that sword belongs to God. And so even in that place of suffering and pain, God remains in control. That doesn't make exile easy. We want to be really, really clear about that. Because in exile, injustice reigns. Inequality is the norm, and sin seems to win. And so our cry is like that of Lamentations chapter 5 and verse 5 of a people who were experienced in exile. Those who pursue us are on our heels. We are weary. We find no rest. That's the cry. That's the prayer of somebody who's in exile. Exile is hard. But if we are going to honor those who've gone before us, the faithful who've experienced exile before us, those who have suffered as the people of God, then we must also take very, very seriously their praise in exile. We must take very, very seriously their declaration of God's sovereignty, even in exile, while they longed for their homes. When they confessed that God was in control in exile, they were not trafficking in spiritual cliches. They were revealing the truth that had become the source of their hope, that even here, in exile, God is in control. Amen? Here's the second truth in exile that will help us to thrive. We have purpose in exile. I'm going to read for you a a passage that some of you will be familiar with, Jeremiah 29, verses 5 through 7. The prophet is writing from Jerusalem to uh, a people who've been carried off into captivity, into exile in Babylon. They're wondering, when are we going to get home? They're crying out to God, when are we going to go back and rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and be home? And Jeremiah instead says, no, In your exile, verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Our strong uh, tendency while we are in exile, our strong tendency is always going to be to lessen the hardship of that experience. 
And the easiest way to do that is to just get out of, get out of exile, to go home. That's what the Israelites wanted to do. But well, what if going home is not an option? Well, then we are tempted to distract ourselves, to entertain ourselves endlessly, to drown out sort of the, the hard reality of our place in exile, of what is wrong and unjust and wicked around us, that feeling of being overwhelmed, like there's nowhere I can go. I'm just in exile. There can be a tendency to try to distract ourselves. There's another tendency, which is to blend in. This was the case for some of the Israelites. They found that they could blend in in Babylon. They, they figured out how to play the Babylonian game, how to access the power, how to, how to change names and, and cover up accents and, and get on the, the Babylonian treadmill. They figured out how the game worked in Babylon, and for them the temptation was to, was to blend in. It was too hard to keep that identity of an exile. Those are our strong tendencies when we find ourselves in those places. But as long as as we are in exile, until Jesus returns and we find our eternal home in his kingdom, as long as we are in exile, we are called instead to live with purpose. Jeremiah says there's work to do. There are gardens to plant. There are weddings to attend. There are prayers to be prayed. There's purpose for you in exile, in Babylon. Exile is not apathy. Exile is not resignation. Exile is absolutely not defeat, amen? Exile is active. In exile, we proclaim the gospel to the captives and to the captors as well. In exile, we resist injustice and wickedness. In exile, we build and nourish communities that point forward to God's coming kingdom. Whatever situation of exile you find yourself in this morning, God has purpose for you in that place. Here's number three. God is with us in exile. Not only is God in control in exile, not only do we have purpose in exile, God is present with us in exile. Another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, wrote to a people who were tired, who were beleaguered, who were worn out, who just wanted to be done with this whole exile thing. And Isaiah says to them in chapter 40, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Now, I know some of us, we love that passage. It goes on to talk about even youth grow tired. Right? You know that. A lot of us know that. And maybe you quote that when you're running, you're exercising, or when you're studying up late at night. Listen, this is to a people in exile. They weren't just... They were bone tired. They were soul tired. Their minds were besieged. Their imaginations were, 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 were held captive by the empire. They were fatigued in that deep place. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And the word of the Lord for them is that God is near in this place. And it's okay if you get tired because God won't. It's okay if you grow weary. It's okay if you stumble every once in a while because God will not grow tired even in this place. He will draw near to you in his strength. Is that good news to three, four, five of us today? Not only is God in control, he draws near to us. He strengthens us. He encourages us. In exile, God provides a hope that is not contingent 
on your success when it comes to the American dream. He provides a security that is not subject to the whims of Wall Street. Listen, through Jesus, God entered our exile. Through Jesus, God allowed the wheels of the empire to roll over his sinless body. The weight of greed and violence brought down upon the suffering servant. From the cross, the Son of God was despised by this world's powers, even as he breathed his last to secure our salvation from sin, our liberation from exile. God is with you in your place of exile. So, recap. The experience of exile is a normal part of the Christian life. Until Jesus returns, our heavenly citizenship and, and our heavenly citizenship is made viscerally permanent. You and I need to expect different forms of exile to intersect with our discipleship to Jesus. Are you with me? This is normal. But those who've gone before us testify that it is possible to thrive in exile because God is still on the throne, because He has given us purpose even in situations of exile. And that regardless of our circumstances, God is with us. Amen? Amen. Are you with me? That's the foundation for everything uh, to come as we look at different aspects of our experience in exile. And I wanted to start this morning with faith and doubt. So in 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 the few remaining minutes, let's look together at the role of faith and doubt in situations of exile. Amy read for us, Two passages about someone who many of us would know as Doubting Thomas. Because maybe the most famous story about the disciple Thomas is his, his doubts that he has after Jesus' resurrection. But I want to suggest today that Thomas is not just a doubter, he's actually a man of great faith as well. We hear him say at the end of the first passage Amy read, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that's a man of faith, I would say. Right, he's like, Let, whatever, I'm in. Let's do this thing. We're going to go because Jesus is leading us there. Uh, the religious leaders had already tried to kill Jesus in Bethany, and now Jesus was going back there. That's why the disciples were afraid. There was a very real chance that the religious leaders would try to kill or capture Jesus again. Thomas was probably afraid as well, I would assume, but he still cast his vote to go with Jesus into danger. Now, maybe his words don't sound all that much like faith to you. Maybe they sound more kind of fatalistic, like, well, whatever, we're going to die. Might as well die now. He's been talking about his death. Let's just get it over with. Maybe that's what it sounds like to some of you. To me, though, I still hear some faith in his words. And I actually think that, that his words uh, give us something important. I, I, think, I think Thomas can teach us something important about the kind of faith that is required in situations of exile. So once, that, once we, we, we come to grips with, once we, we accept our, our place in exile as Christian people, faith becomes incredibly important, not just to one time saying yes to Jesus, but actually to living daily with Jesus. Once we come to grips with our, our situation of exile, faith becomes super, super important. Because, because in exile, we are subject to constant idolatry, to constant injustice, and to constant iniquity. Injustice, idolatry, and iniquity, we're we're surrounded by these things in situations of of exile. And if we're honest, we are susceptible to them. 
we can come to act as though God actually does have divine rivals, as, as though God were somehow on an equal playing field with, with false gods and idols. Or we can come to accommodate certain injustices in our world. Some of us even find ways to profit from them. We succumb to our sins, finding countless culturally savvy ways to excuse our offenses against a righteous God. We are susceptible to these things in exile. And so maintaining our identity as God's salt and light requires that we live by faith and not by what our eyes can see. We need faith. In exile, but what does that kind of faith actually look like? Sometimes I hear us talk about faith as though it were a limited commodity, a limited commodity that we struggle to hang on to. I picture it like this this little, I don't know, orb or something, and it's slippery, and we're just trying to not let it kind of squirt out of our hands and like hold on to it, right? And our language betrays this, right? We say, I need more faith. I struggle to have faith. I wish I had her level of faith. It's some kind of a thing. If I could just get more of this thing, if my thing could get bigger somehow, I would be okay. But faith in the Bible is not a commodity that we possess. Faith is a gift that we place in Jesus. I really want you to, that to be, I want you to hear that. I want that to land Faith is not a commodity that we possess. Faith is a gift from God that we place in Jesus. And I really do. I want to make this as plain as I know how to today. What does it mean to be a Christian in a situation of exile? It simply means taking whatever amount of faith God has given you and placing that faith in Jesus alone. Period. Period. And, and, and the problem some of us face, because we think of faith as a commodity, and, and, we, and, we, and we are always thinking that we just don't have enough faith. I think if I just had more faith, then I could be more obedient to what God has for me. If I just had more faith, then I could, could, could take that risk that I've been wanting to take for so long. If I just had more faith, then I'd be able to confess this sin or this addiction to this person. If I just had more faith, and so we get stuck in that place and, and think, man, they must have more faith because I see the way they're living. And, and so that person just must, I don't know what they did, but somehow they got more faith. If I had faith is a gift from God, period. You don't earn it. You don't conjure it up. You don't sit in the corner and just think these happy thoughts until you have more faith. Doesn't matter how good worship is on a Sunday morning that doesn't miraculously drop this whole big extra amount of faith in your lap out of thin air. Faith is always a gift from God. Period. What is this is the good news? That means that any amount of faith that you have is a gift from God. And that means that any amount of faith that you have is enough. Is enough. Because it was never yours in the first place. You didn't think enough spiritual thoughts. You didn't get your stuff together enough to earn it somehow. It was always a gift. And so some of you are like, man, I just have this tiny little bit of faith. It's just, that's a gift from God. And and, and the only thing that you and I do with that faith is we place it in Jesus. That's it. 
That's it. What does it mean to be a Christian who lives by faith in situations of exile? It is to receive and accept any gift of faith that has been given to you by God and then placing that in the Son of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I would venture to say that every single one of us in this room have been given some amount of faith by God. You wouldn't be here otherwise. Right? And some of you are comparing your faith to somebody else. Stop it! Stop it! You have been given whatever measure of faith God desired to give to you today. Now take that thing and place it in Jesus and Jesus alone. That means you might have to take it away from something else, right? You might have to take it away from somebody else. But take whatever that little thing is and place. So Jesus, when he talks about faith, he goes, what's the smallest thing I could think of? What's the smallest thing? A mustard seed. I asked a um, real science-y kind of person about this years ago. I was like, what would, what, would the, what would our equivalent of a mustard seed be? What would Jesus have said to us today? He said, a neutrino. Now, I forget what that is. I knew years ago when he told me. Does anybody know what a neutrino is? So I'm not making this up. It's a real thing. What's a neutrino? It's small, right? Doesn't interact with me. I don't know what anything that may, what anything he said. I just totally over my head. But it's tiny, right? Tiny, tiny, tiny. So that's what Jesus was doing. Like Jesus was reaching for what is the smallest thing that my hearers would be able to imagine, and that's what he compares our faith to, right? Jesus could have used a lot of different examples. He could say, well, "Mustard seed's not quite enough." You're going, to need, you're going to need a fig, lots of fig trees. Some of about the size of a fig, right? But he literally chooses the smallest thing. Why? Because the size of your faith is not the point. It's where you place it. And your faith was given to you by God. If you have faith, according to the Bible, it's because God gave you that faith. And the only thing you're required to do with that faith is to place it in Jesus and Jesus alone. Somebody say amen. It's good news, right? Where am I on these notes? I have no idea. I have no idea where I am. All right, let's just start. Let's try with this. Okay, so placing our faith in Jesus will require that we don't place that faith anywhere else, right? Because we're always tempted to place whatever faith we have in something or somebody. And so it's a thing, it's that shiny thing, if I could just get that thing, if I could just have that, that thing, it's that status increasing grad school, if I just get in there, it's that particular job or version of that job, it's that relationship. But, but, but being a Christian, becoming a person who trusts Jesus alone for salvation means placing the faith that God has given you in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, alone gave his life for us on the cross that we might be saved from our sins, rescued from this world's injustices, and then sent into this world proclaiming the good news of God's salvation. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Can I ask that question differently? Are you placing your faith in Jesus? Because I know some of you, I said, have you placed your faith in Jesus? I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time. That question does not pertain to me. Are you placing your faith in Jesus? Right now, actively. The gift of exile 
the painful gift of exile is that the true nature of your faith will be revealed. Have you placed your faith mostly in yourself, in your ability to succeed, to win this rigged game of consumer capitalism? Is that where you've placed your faith? Have you placed yourself mostly in that specific relationship? Is your faith enmeshed in pleasing that person, your advisor, your parent, your spouse, the painful gift of exile is that the trustworthiness of where we have placed our faith will be revealed. Corporations will crumble. Friendships will fail. Your greatest triumphs in this life will very quickly fade into obscurity. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Are you placing your faith in Jesus? I'm asking those of you who have never considered yourself to be a Christian, and I'm asking those of you who have always considered yourself to be a Christian, where have you placed whatever amount of faith God has given you? Listen to Thomas, who in Jesus found the only trustworthy foundation for his faith, so much so that even the prospect of Death was not enough to keep him from literally placing his faith in Jesus. It was not enough to undermine his identity, to steal his hope. That kind of faith, I promise you, is available to us today, no matter what kind of exile you are experiencing. And that is the sort of faith that exile requires of us. Amen? Now let's talk about doubt. Because despite his faith, We mostly know Thomas for his doubts. So after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples, but Thomas, I don't know what he was doing. He was not in the room when it happened. And so he didn't believe them. All the disciples told him, Jesus resurrected. He's here. We saw him. He appeared in the flesh. Thomas said, I'm going to need to see him and touch him before I believe that he's resurrected from the dead. It doesn't doesn't even sound like the same person whose faith led him to offer his life for Jesus. right? Like It seems like two completely different people. I think that Thomas shows us that despite the need for faith in exile, there can be no authentic faith without moments of doubt. Can I say that again? There can be no authentic faith without moments of doubt, seasons of doubt. Doubt, in other words, is not something to fear, but a reality to accept in the life of faith. And I know some of you are like, Is that that okay to say? That sounds blasphemous. Are we sure about this? Consider, to begin with, how exile breeds doubt. The Israelites constantly struggled with this during their own times of exile. They constantly struggled with doubt. Were not the violent and nationalistic Babylonian gods more impressive than Yahweh? Could the one God really be good given their displacement from their home country, the destruction of their temple, the destruction of their city and their walls? Was God really good? Could the one, was there really a hopeful future for them, surrounded as they were by foreign powers, simultaneously alluring and oppressive in their arrogance and violence? I want to say this again very, very clearly. You are not at home. This country is not your home. This city is not your home. 
this world until it is remade by Jesus is not your home. And some of you know this viscerally in your bones. The generations before you remind you of a legacy of racialized exile in this place. Some of you have discovered the fact that this is not your home more recently as we hear the nation's most powerful leaders slander immigrants and refugees on a daily basis. And others of us, let's be honest, others of us in this room still need to learn the lesson that this is not our home. Our privilege and power connects us to this modern-day Babylon so that we have long mistaken it for our God-given home. But we were wrong. None of us who confess Jesus as Lord and his, and his kingdom as our true home can ever be at home in this place. We are all of us exiles, and so we will all know doubt. We will all know those dark nights of the soul, minds that are being shaped by this nation's gods of illicit power and glorified greed will inevitably provoke doubt in us. Is God actually in control? Come on, you've asked that before, I hope. Right? When the latest thing comes out, when the latest tragedy, when the latest injustice, when it's the same injustice again in a different repackaged form, is God really in control? Do we actually have meaningful purpose in this place? Are we making a difference? Is God anywhere to be found amid the rubble of plundered lands and plundered communities? Here's what I want you to know today. Doubt is always the companion of the exiles. And more than that, doubt is always the companion of faith. Notice what Jesus does not do with Thomas. He does not reprimand him. He does not shame him. He does not say, Thomas, you were with me for three years. You should have known better, man. Not only does Jesus not reprimand Thomas, Jesus actually accommodates himself to Thomas's doubts. Is that your version of God? Is that your vision of who God is? Is that your vision of how much God loves you and cares about you? Jesus accommodates himself to Thomas's doubts. It's almost like Jesus knows that doubt is a normal part of the life of faith for his believers. What a thought. If we never experience doubt, then we are not living by faith. If we never experience doubt, then we are not living by faith. We are living by certainty. We are living by proof. We are living by evidence. And while there is plenty of certainty and proof and evidence within Christianity, thanks be to God, none of it can replace the foundation of placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, real faith, will always make room for moments and seasons of doubt. Real faith will not fear doubt. Why? Because you and I are capable of choosing faith and experiencing doubt at the same time. Sometimes I have conversations with different ones of you. I'm struggling with doubt. And you are feeling bad about that. And I'm feeling really good about that. Because if you're struggling with doubt, that means you're also experiencing faith. There's no doubt without faith. You can't wrestle with doubt if you aren't living by faith. Are you with me, church? 
as we come to see our place in exile, as we long for our eternal home and God's coming kingdom, we are going to grow in our spiritual capacity and our emotional maturity to move forward in faith even as we experience doubt. We will find that instead of our doubts being a stain on our faith, they are actually the ancient companions of all who have placed their faith in Jesus. confession, I woke up like at midnight last night. I was awake for two hours uh, like perseverating on things I'm not sure God's actually going to do that I really need him to do. God, we got to raise some money for new community outreach. I've never done that before. I don't know if I can do that. What's going to happen if we don't raise that money? no faith without moments of doubt. It's up to you and I what we do in that moment. How we'll move forward in faith even in those experiences of doubt. Amen? That might have been a prayer request too. Might have been a prayer request. We're going to find, church, that Jesus, rather than chastising our doubts, rather than simplistically assuring us that everything's going to be just fine. Instead, we're going to find that Jesus takes our hands like he did Thomas's hands and place them on his scars. Jesus doesn't come alongside, hey, get over your doubts. Stop it. Jesus doesn't come alongside and give you some trite spiritual cliche. Here, just repeat this every morning and you're going to be okay. Jesus takes Thomas's hands and he puts them on his wounds, on his, on his wounds that are just a few days old. Standing in faith amid the ravaging doubts of exile, Jesus points us to himself. Jesus points us again to his own sacrificial and suffering death for our sinful, doubting self. And here's the thing. When Jesus takes your hands and he places them on his scars, on his wounds, he is pointing you to himself, but he's also pointing you beyond himself, beyond your exile, to our once and future and permanent home. Faith is a gift of God meant to bring us to Jesus. And in God's mercy, Our doubts, too, are a gift, pulling us not away from God, but like Thomas, pulling us toward him. His wounds, a testimony to our troubled hearts and our wandering minds that even here, in this place, that seems so, so far from home, even here, God has drawn near to you. So, Spirit, we ask that you open our our eyes to 
the circumstances and situations of exile that we find ourselves in. We come from a long line of people of God who despite being sent and kept away from home, have found their home in you. And so as much as our hearts long for home, as much as we're tempted to make other places and other things and other people our home, as much as we're tempted to blend in to a world that does not recognize you as our Savior, This morning, we ask that you would help us to find our home in you and in you alone. You will keep us. And not only that, you will prosper us, even in a place of exile. You will accomplish the plans and purposes and dreams and visions you have for us despite our circumstances. You will give us lives of meaning and purpose that transcend the day-to-day circumstances of this world. Find us faithful to plant gardens, to nurture and nourish families and communities, to pray for the shalom of Chicago and this country and this world. Find us faithful in exile. This morning, Lord Jesus, I come again to the question, have we placed our faith in you? Are we placing our faith in you? And in the closing time that we have in worship, I pray that each one of us would find a way once again to take whatever amount of faith we have today, it's always a gift, and to place it in you and you alone, to find our salvation, our hope, our future, our meaning, our identity, our purpose in you. For those this morning who have wrestled hard and long with doubt, Lord Jesus, let each of us hear your invitation to Thomas to draw near, maybe not to understand fully, maybe not to have every single question answered, but to draw near and to place our hands on your wounds, on your scars, to find once again the tender, merciful love of God available to us today. In Jesus' name.